finishing up three-part mini-series on The Church Is, and we've looked at a couple different pictures that were given in Scripture for who we are called to be, invited to be. So this final part, the church is meant to be one, to be unified, not uniform, unified, diverse, yet not divided. In Jesus' prayer, we hear that we are called to be one, that he prays on the night before his crucifixion with some urgency and some passion. It's the largest, longest recorded prayer of Jesus we have in the scriptures from John 17, taking portions of it that Mark just read. He prays in a number of significant, powerful ways for his followers, and not just his disciples, as you heard there, but, but for all of those who will come to believe through the message. So he, his vision is for us. It's for all. And he prays for joy. He prays for protection, for faithfulness. He prays for our witness, for sanctification. He prays that we would know his love and his presence with us forever. Powerful prayers. But there's one prayer, and that's why we took sections of it, but as you read through, there's one prayer that's repeated three times for his followers, that they would be one, that they would be unified together Right there in verse 9, that they may be one as we are one. So he's praying to his Father, and what we know of that oneness, could there be anything closer, anything more intimate of the relationship between Jesus and the Father? May they be one, may we be one, as Jesus and the Father is a pretty astounding prayer, heart from Jesus for his followers. Verse 20, I pray also For all who will believe that they would be one, just as you are in me and I am in you. This is beyond courtesy. It's beyond friendship. It's beyond even the intimacy we may know within our families. This is the heart of Jesus, this kind of oneness. It truly is a longing, something that we have not experienced, but is deeply upon his heart. And then again in verse 22, may they be brought to complete unity. Do we pray like this? This is where we ended last week. Do we pray like this for the church, even though if we've, we've never experienced it, and for some, quite the opposite? We, maybe we've even trusted at one point, brothers and sisters, church, leadership, and been hurt, experienced the opposite of the heart of Jesus? Will we still pray with the same longing? Will we name and lament how often the, the church as a whole has, has failed to fulfill this call and prayer and heart of Jesus? And the church today isn't primarily known, say church, sometimes we say the capital C church, the broader church isn't necessarily known for unity and oneness, for humility, for peace, but maybe the opposite, for disunity, divisiveness, and brokenness. You know, Martin Luther King famously said in 1960 that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. Perhaps Malcolm X, perhaps James Baldwin also spoke that, that phrase, but has much changed Though our world and culture has changed 
dramatically has that statement become less true today. It wasn't a new problem for the church, even in 1960. Remember, Paul confronted Peter, this is recorded in Galatians chapter 2, for segregation, for division, for a lack of oneness. Galatians 2, 11, when Peter came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face directly because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men had come from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, simply non-Jews, which previous to Jesus coming and breaking down those walls was unheard of for for a Jew to, to dine at the same table. You may remember the famous vision that Peter was given, recorded in Acts, that all foods are now clean. Basically, the table is open for all to come and to be in fellowship. And Peter did eat with all peoples, but he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. These would have been uh, the more orthodox Jews, the more intense zealots. And whether that was actual fear for his own safety... Remember, they did persecute the prophets and Jesus and his followers, or whether that was fear of standing with them or reputation, we're not sure. But he began to draw back and he joined the other Jews in his hypocrisy. So that even by their hypocrisy, Barnabas was led astray. Can you believe that? Even Barnabas. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow these Jewish customs? So not a new problem for the church to divide, to segregate us and them. These weren't only ethnic divisions, and maybe that's not where your first mind went when we heard Jesus' prayer for oneness Maybe it went interpersonally to relationship. We'll get there. But there's been division across much more significant lines as well for the history of the church. Not just ethnic, but social and economic as well. Paul, again, he rebukes the Corinthian church for dividing along those lines. You may remember 1 Corinthians chapter 11. A number of scriptures today, right? You got fast fingers, ready to go. Stay alert, stay awake. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, Corinthians, For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as the church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. Verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. You can can hear the intense emotion from Paul, right? This This is antithetical to what Christ has come to do. Really, it's for him, it's foundational to the gospel, the breaking down of walls, of divisions that we've we've become accustomed to that are natural for us along these ethnic or social or economic or political lines. He said in Galatians 3.26, famously, for, it is, for in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's picking the absolute 
most extreme divisions that could be among us and say, these divisions do not exist anymore in Christ and therefore in our relationships. You are one in Christ. The breaking down of those walls, those divisions, is not just foundational to the gospel, it's why Jesus died. Listen to Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, really the famous Ephesians 2 that articulates what our faith is, where it comes from, how we are saved. And Paul goes on to say, Ephesians 2, 11 and following, remember calling the church, therefore we receive this, the church, remember that at one time, you who were Gentiles by birth, non-Jews, no Jewish heritage, which is most of us gathered in the room, though some could trace uh, Jewish heritage, most of us cannot. So this is for us. Remember that this is our heritage. We were the uncircumcision, air quotes, by those who are called the circumcision. Jews had that ancient practice. Non-Jews didn't. And so there was a natural division, a line between us. A physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time without Christ. You were aliens. You were strangers. And you had no hope. You were without God in the world. This is what Paul says. This is our history. This is our heritage. But now, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ. This is what he's done through his death. This reconciliation, this drawing near of all who would come. You who once were far off have been brought near, for he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one. He's broken down that dividing wall. He's broken down any hostility that has existed amongst us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances. Now, Paul doesn't go into, it's not completely abolished in its, in its meaning or power or importance. He's saying the divide is, is abolished. No more Jews who adhere and are therefore accepted to Gentiles who are not. It's been abolished. That he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross. He put to death the hostility through the cross. So Jesus came, he proclaimed peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, to the Jews. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers, aliens, foreigners, but citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is central and foundational to the gospel. Reconciliation and peace is the reason Jesus would go to the cross, to break down all divides between humanity and God, he's the mediator, and between one another. He's already accomplished it. This is what's been done. Jesus has made us one in the provision of his death. He has abolished, crucified the dividing lines amongst us. So if, if this has been accomplished, what is our responsibility? Not to create unity or peace, but to maintain it. It's been done. 
feels like a lot of our effort is to make it, to create it, to urge it to happen. According to the scriptures, it has been accomplished. Our responsibility is to maintain the peace. It's a different mindset. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, his famous chapter coming after what it means to be saved by Christ. Now, what does it look like in living, right? From the indicatives of who we are to now the imperatives of what it must be as we are the church. Ephesians 4, as a prisoner for the Lord, so he's writing this from his own chains, his own imprisonment, waiting to see Nero. I urge you, you church, again, us, to lead a life worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And here we go, verse 3, Ephesians 4, verse 3, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. So if unity and oneness for God's people is his will and desire, it's core to the gospel, it's the passionate prayer of Jesus, not just for his first disciples, but for all of us, if it's what Jesus was willing to die for, to reconcile all to God and to one another, and if it's already been accomplished, how is it possible that we are still so divided and fractured and broken today and maybe seemingly more than ever? Where are you, Lord? Do we need to crucify Jesus again? Because apparently we don't believe in a God who laid down his life for unity and for oneness. Or we simply don't want to follow him in his life. So it's either a lack of faith or a refusal to love. Which is it, church? And the temptation is to point, to point fingers to those out there, those other Christians, that, that pastor that we know or is on social media or that church or that denomination, with all humility, I urge you, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That is a plural call. Paul is writing plural, not individual. Certainly we can also receive that for who else are we responsible for when it comes to maintaining unity, Jesus has invited us. What does this mean? Union Hill Church, I urge us to live a life worthy of the calling we have received. Jesus has invited us and invited you. Now receive this individually to the table, to his table again and again and again. How much has he forgiven you? Seven times? Seventy times seven? And more. For it is by grace you have been saved, not of yourself. It's a gift of God. Be amazed again at God's love and pursuit of you and then collectively of us. If we have been loved like this, forgiven like this, invited like this, 
How could we possibly still set up walls and divisions and judgments toward others? Only from that posture of remembering who we are and what has been done for us, how much we are loved, how much God has poured out his grace for us. Only from this posture can we welcome and bless all peoples with all gentleness and patience, bear with one another in love. Now, Paul doesn't say this is going to be easy, that very clearly. Make every effort to maintain this unity. This is hard. No wonder. This is hard. But we are called to maintain it, not to create it, to maintain it. And thankfully, we're not alone in this work. We know we are one in the Spirit. The Spirit is at work to empower any effort of ours to maintain unity and peace and reconciliation. Whenever we work to that end, the Spirit is with us. This is the heart of God. Where are the voices calling out for this kind of unity and oneness in the body? It's a little ironic, isn't it? It seems the voices today that are crying out are being heard are against something, maybe everything. And so it seems kind of antithetical and hypocritical for the voices who are calling out for something, for unity, for peace, for oneness, for love, for mercy, for forgiveness. Those voices tend to get silenced. They cannot tolerate the drama and the cacophony of the other voices that are against with hostility, with condemnation, with slander, with canceling, with belittling. Those voices are what get the attention and stir up the clicks and the fear and the uncertainty, and it's seemingly the way our world is today. Certainly, we are against disunity, divisiveness, the drama, but humility with gentleness and all patience, will not tolerate the hypocrisy of joining in to that kind of cacophony. And Jesus was not, though he did condemn the Jews, he was not crying out in the marketplace with condemnation. He was joining dinner parties and welcoming sinners to the table, breaking down religious walls, social walls, ethnic walls, cultural walls. Let's put some flesh on this a little bit. There's practical things we can do, because I think the, the call to Ephesians, which is convicting, but is a high call and a high bar, is maybe not all that tangible, right? Hear that again. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bear with one another, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. What does that actually look like? What does that actually mean for us? It's a heart that we pray to have, but what do we actually do? What, what Paul? Um, and there's maybe many things, and certainly this isn't an exhaustive message, but beginning with remembering. Beginning with remembering what Christ has done to reconcile us. Remembering who we are, as we looked at recently, the picture of the prodigal. We are the prodigal son or daughter who has been loved that deeply, has been promised all the inheritance that God would give, 
Whether we were aware of it or not, we all, like the prodigal, wandered away from the household to live life on our own, to distrust, doubt, or dismiss the love and goodness of our God, to do life on our own. Maybe we do that week over week, but many of us have a long season of that being our reality and our story. And then when we've come to our senses or awareness, as we have tried all the things the world has offered and have remained empty and unfulfilled, God, my Father, has loved me and called me back. Maybe I will still have a place with him. And we go, and what is the Father's response but the picture of the love of God? To embrace, to welcome, to celebrate, to be restored, to delight in us. You must remember how your God sees you, has always seen you as his child. Because from that posture alone can we then begin to bear with, to bless, to see others as God sees them. It's easy to forget until we see and are reminded again of what God has done for us. Another picture, another parable. We are the debtor, having been forgiven the incredible amount owed. This is the parable from Matthew chapter 18, verse 23. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wants to settle accounts with his servants. This is just one picture of forgiveness, by the way. That's why we have many for the full understanding of what God has done to reconcile, to forgive, to heal. But here's one that his, his hearers could understand. A king demanding to be paid what he is owed. And he begins the, he begins the settlement. A man who owes him 10,000 talents is brought in. Translation, millions in our, in our day. An incredible amount. Unpayable is the whole point of the parable. Again, it's a, it's a parable. But we're meant to be astonished by the amount owed. How did you accrue that much debt? He cannot pay. The servant falls on his knees and begs the king and says, I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt. Again, we're supposed to be astonished. Canceled it? What do you mean canceled it? Wiped it out? Can't be. There must be a catch. No, this is the gospel. This is astonishing that it could simply be wiped away. The story, the parable is more astonishing than that, right? But when the servant, having been forgiven, canceled the, had the canceled debt, went out from that place and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, some thousands of dollars, compared to the millions he grabbed him and began to choke him and demanded, pay back what you owe me. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, I'll pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Again, parable, but we're supposed to be astonished. How could this be? How could that be possible? If God's love and mercy is this deep toward us, how could we possibly not extend it to others? That's the point of the parable. So we're supposed to be astonished, if not even angry toward this servant, and then convicted, right? As Nathan the prophet went to David and told the parable, and David was angry and furious and said, that's you. Held up the mirror. This is supposed to be the same for us. How dare that be possible? Wait a minute, have I done that to my fellow brother or sister 
demanded more from them than God has even asked of me? Lord, help. Help me love like that. Help me forgive like that. So far to go. So remember, with remembrance, our position as debtor, as prodigal, forgiven, restored, loved like that. Love like that. Forgive like that. From that posture, it starts there. With all humility and gentleness, bear with one another. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, unified with him, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion from him, then make my joy complete. There would be nothing that would give me greater joy than to be, you to be like-minded toward others. Have the same love for one another. Be in one spirit and one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourself. Because remember how much you are already loved and blessed by God himself. It could, you could need nothing more. So consider others' needs. Because God has already considered yours. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Again, a high call and in practicality. How do, we, how do we actually do this? Let me give us a couple more tangible things. Yes, a whole lot of prayer and just maturing in the Lord. A whole lot of being reminded of who we are, who God is, how much he loves us, and daily embracing that gospel. That's ongoing work. That's effort to be reminded that we might then love and see others as God does. You know, for me, a surprising source recently in this last year, I can't even remember where I picked it up or who recommended it, but a secular psychology book, What Happened to You? by psychologist Bruce Perry and co-authored by Oprah. Has anyone read that, that book, What Happened to You? The title describes the shift. I would recommend it, secular psychology book, but the shift of our thinking and mindset toward others who are, let's put it nicely, behaving poorly. Do we see anyone in our broader world? And then we can bring it down. (laughs) Behaving poorly. All the way to harmful action toward us. Sin even against us. So there's a spectrum. Our natural response or reaction is to ask, what is wrong with you? which isn't really a question, but a statement, a judgment. What is wrong with you? Or what is wrong with them based on that behavior or that action or that harm given? And what this book is inviting us to, which is very Christ-like at its heart, is to ask the question of the title instead. Let that be our response to poor behavior, to sin against us or to harm against us. What happened to you? What happened in your story, in your background, that this is now coming out? This harm, this hurt, this vitriol, this anger, this need to cut down or slander or break relationships, what happened to you? It begins to enter into the broader story. There's so much more that I don't see that God alone does. It enters into his narrative. It recognizes that often those who are hurting or pushing away through words and actions are ones who have been hurt deeply, pushed away, abandoned, or abused. 
experiencing incredible trauma. And pausing to ask that question has been transformative for me just in the past year. I want to know there's more to the story. I may never know. I may not have that kind of a relationship with someone who is hurting or harming or simply behaving poorly, which we would expect more of and better of. Sometimes it's surprising. But to ask that question, what happened? Maybe it was recent. Maybe it goes way back. Maybe it goes generations. The scriptures speak of the generational sins passed down, which simply could be trauma or abuse or anxiety passed down. It begins to enter into the larger narrative and maybe opens up a door to understand, to write a story that leads to compassion for someone who has experienced maybe much more harm or trauma or abuse than we could even know, and maybe even than they know. It does not excuse behavior or sin against us. It's not, that's not the point. That's not meant to excuse it, especially harmful behavior, but it may lead to compassion and helping to bear with in patience. But if Oprah and a secular psychiatrist aren't your cup of tea, how about back to Jesus? Previous to the parable of the forgiven servant and the talents, in that same chapter, Matthew 18, Jesus gives us instructions for reconciliation. Do you remember this? Matthew 18, 15. If, I would say when, when your brother or your sister, so now he is speaking maybe to family, but also probably to his spiritual family, his followers, uh, so it should be a stronger relationship like we might have with many in, in the room here or at our life groups. If that brother or that sister sins against you, go and show them the hurt they have caused. Just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them back. If they'll not listen, which primarily the way I read this is, I, I disagree. I, 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 that didn't hurt you. That shouldn't have hurt you. I disagree. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you felt hurt by that. It's, we pro if it's a relationship that just completely dismisses us, it probably wasn't close in the first place. It probably wasn't a brother or sister. It could be. Uh, but I, I think this might capture more strained relationships as a whole. So they don't listen. Take one or two others. Not to prove that they're wrong, but to say, can we share? So for the goal of reconciliation, could you speak into this? Here's what, here's, here's what has happened or been done the hurt that's caused, the harm that's caused, could you be a witness to this that we might be reconciled? That we would have others see and speak into it because that's the goal is oneness, unity, is restoring that relationship. If that person still refuses to listen to witnesses who are all in agreement that, yeah, this was wrong, this was harm, this was hurt, and they refuse then, now tell it to the ecclesia, the broader community. Bring in more people that we would see restoration, reconciliation happen. And if that person refuses to listen even to them, then treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. They interacted with pagans and tax collectors all the time, but they weren't a part of the fellowship. Because to continually deny harm and hurt against another is to resist the gospel. It's to resist the purpose of Jesus in reconciliation. And that person is acting like an unbeliever. That's the way they're choosing to live. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. 
I've preached an entire sermon on this. It's probably worthy of more. But it's rare that Jesus gives us specific steps to follow, really in anything. And so he gives it the tangible for us and then describes it in the parable that we already looked at. I think this is a model that must apply more broadly than just a harsh sin against us, though it can. More often than not, we have strained relationships that take place. A word said, an action that hurt. What if we apply this model to even those relationships? Maybe not even needing to name a sin, but there's been a fracture, a distancing, a breaking, a strain. Rather than simply letting it go, and sometimes we can just show grace and mercy and can let that go. Other times, if, it's not, if it keeps distance between us and another, could we apply Jesus' words, knowing the high call of bearing with one another with all patience, with all humility, to maintain the unity? That's work. Maybe this gives us some tangible. Go to that person. Now, I am not speaking to incredible harm here, like going to an abuser or someone who is really hurt. That's not a safe situation. That's not what Jesus, I think, is referring to. That would take much more care or counsel and, and probably not ever be a safe place, to, certainly to go one-on-one. But if we apply this to more just strained relationships that weren't, aren't as close as they used to be, we got, we, we've been hurt, what would this look like to go and approach in order for reconciliation, that being the goal, not, not to win, but to win back the relationship. Please, can we assume, maybe I don't need to tell you, so I'm just speaking it out there. Please, can we assume positive intent more? When there's a track record of ill intent, I understand how difficult that is for that person or individual. But if this is an out-of-character thing, if you have a history of relationship, we're not even that close, but there's a relationship in place, and it seems out of character, can we please choose positive intent? I wonder if they really meant that. I wonder what happened to them this week. Because that seems out of character. And with that posture, go and say, you know, what you did or what you said hurt me this week or a couple weeks ago, and I feel distance between us. And I don't know if that was your intention, but that was the impact it had on me. Intention versus impact is such a tool for communication that opens the door for potential reconciliation. If we go to those that have harmed us and say, you did this and harmed me, you are now the judge in that situation, really, and the jury, and it doesn't leave a lot of room. It takes then great humility on the reciprocant side to say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, I, I did not mean it, which may happen, and the relationship may be restored, but oftentimes with, with force, we then force back, or we resist back. Well, you're being too sensitive. No, I didn't say that. I, how, you know, and then all of a sudden, there's, it's broken. Instead of with the posture of, this action or this word hurt me. I, I, I don't know if that was your intent. I, I want to believe it wasn't because I know you, but it was the impact. Can we work through this? You may say it in different words in different ways, but that heart posture is a ready posture for reconciliation. And then from there, it makes sense that yeah, we, we, we're not eye to eye on this. I, maybe I did say that, but I didn't, I didn't mean it. I'm sorry, but there's still, still fractured here. Can we bring in others to help us through this? for reconciliation.
If that's the heart. And can we, again, I'll just speak this out into the air, can we stop entertaining gossip and hearsay? We hear one side of the story from a friend about another and what they did, and we say, yeah, that was wrong, and now we have a brokenness in this relationship over here instead of going and saying, you know, I I heard something that unsettles me. Again, I don't know. I'm coming to you. Instead of writing the narrative on hearsay and gossip, it's got to stop. And I'm sure none of us need to hear that. But I know where I've done it. And I don't want to keep doing it. So maybe some practicals along with Jesus. Let's flip this around and then head toward the end here. Is it possible we're the one who has hurt or sinned against another? And that person has not come to us for any number of reasons. We're not approachable. But as you look at certain relationships, there's distance that wasn't there before. Maybe you've let it drift. Maybe that person has drifted, but you think of a certain relationship. Is it possible we've done or said something? Or back to hearsay, they've assumed we've done or said something, and we've let distance grow. Could we be the one with all humility to go and say, I sense this distance. I feel this distance. I don't know if that's intentional on your part. It hasn't been intentional on mine, or it has been intentional. I've made some distance. I'm sorry. Could we work through this and have a conversation and restore that relationship and maybe even grow from there? We will often need others to help us in this for counsel, for encouragement. or even as these witnesses to walk with us. It will not be easy. Make every effort. It is not easy work. It's hard work. But forgiveness and reconciliation and unity and peace are at stake, which means the gospel is at stake, which means our witness to the world is at stake. Jesus said, John 13, 34, I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. You should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Can we do this? It depends if we actually want to see Christ's vision and heart for his people be reality. It depends if we want to actually follow Jesus in his words and his life or merely take them into consideration as potentially helpful. It's kind of a big deal. Unity, oneness is heaven. It's not an understatement. The vision John gives in Revelation 9, 7, 9. I looked and I saw a great multitude that no one could count. Here's the picture of God's kingdom on that day to come. From every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, and languages, standing as one before the throne, crying out in a voice. All languages, a voice. How does that happen? But... Divine unity, still diverse, not divided. Crying out with a voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. So we say, good, one day we'll all be unified. This will will all be fixed. Thank you, Jesus. But that day is a long ways away. And we've got other things to worry about. The only problem with believing and acting that is rejecting the Lord's prayer. Pray Whenever you pray, God, your kingdom come, this, your kingdom come on earth now as it is in heaven. That's your will. May your will be done. 
Forgive us as we have forgiven others. I don't think we want to reject the Lord's prayer, his heart, knowing it's his vision and his call to us. For some, I know this may be overwhelming as you start to think of the relationships that are distanced and fractured or broken. Don't address them all. First, remember that it has been accomplished. Reconciliation has already been accomplished. It is done. It is not too big for Christ. Remember how much he has done to reconcile you, to forgive you again today. Receive that grace and mercy. He doesn't forgive you any less today because now you are more aware or reminded of brokenness in relationships that either you've caused or you've let happen. He loves you the same. Receive it. Walk in it. Come to the table. Be reminded. And maybe invite him to speak and reveal one relationship that he's inviting you to work toward unity in. If so, pray for his understanding, pray for his peace, pray for understanding of the timing or the words that could be shared. And if there's conviction that there would be encouragement with that, not guilt, no shame, but encouragement, pray for that other and pray for the strength to be faithful to his invitation, not Ben's words, the Spirit's leading for you. Because he calls us to unity, to oneness, to love and service. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled again, amazed again at your love for us, what you have done for us. Thank you for that reminder. It's astonishing. May we be astonished. You love your sons and daughters like this. Thank you. May we respond with worship. May we respond with gratitude, humility. As we come to the table, as we're reminded again in a tangible way, help us to walk this out, to see others as you see them. Where we have hurt or sinned against others, convict us that we would be the ones to go and pursue reconciliation. When others come to us, would you prepare our hearts to be humble? Would you teach us ways to communicate that would express heart and leave room for reconciliation, for others to respond? That we would love one another as you have loved us, and that by this, your world would know and see something radically different, something amazing, something that could only be divine. I pray this for us here in this room. I pray this for the broader church, your church. It's your heart, Jesus. We're joining in it. It's your vision. We want it. May your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, here now, as it is in heaven. Amen.